0: Welcome to the second series of Football and Society, a podcast exploring societal issues through the lens of the beautiful game. In this series, we'll be covering topics such as the safe standing campaign and football fan activism in the age of anti-politics. In this episode, we're looking at unpaid work in football scouting in men's professional football in England. While football in England has long been professionalised, With all but two of the English Football League's 86 members registered as private companies, the work of scouts seeking out new talent is often voluntary. A recent study interviewed scouts in unpaid roles to find out more about their motivations and experiences. Jacob Griffiths and Daniel Blois interviewed 12 football scouts. These included scouts who had previously worked or were currently working in an unpaid role, along with individuals working in senior roles who had experience employing unpaid scouts. For several participants, unpaid work as a scout was an extension of their passion for football as a spectator, though there was also an underlying hope for many of them that with enough experience, they could land a professional paid role. This was despite the lack of evidence indicating that working unpaid will guarantee full-time paid scouting work. The authors of the study saw this as an example of the romanticisation of football, whereby individuals are led to build fantastical hopes on the prospect of making it in the game. Indeed, several participants perceive their unpaid scouting work as an escape from the mundane routines of normal life. As the article notes, however, scouting remains on the periphery of football clubs. The scout operates at an outside level because they are not traditionally part of the inner sanctum of the backroom staff. We're delighted to welcome Jacob Griffiths onto the podcast to discuss this research with us today. Jacob is currently doing a PhD. With the Department of Sport and Exercise Science at the University of Chester and his research interests focus primarily on the lives of those working within the football industry. Jacob thank you so much for joining us today.
1: No worries, thank you for having me on, I like the podcast.
0: Thank you very much, it's a pleasure to, to have you here and can I begin by asking for some insight into the inspiration behind the study, so why were you originally interested in, in this particular topic?
1: To be honest, my interest in scouting has been since I've been quite young, it was always something I wanted to be involved in and looked at scouting for my undergraduate dissertation, which then turned into me thinking about doing it when I was doing my MSc at the University of Chester. The actual idea of what I wanted to look at, I wasn't sure about. I was actually at the time working as a scout in a couple of professional football clubs. So I was myself an unpaid scout. Got talking with my co-author on this and my dissertation supervisor, Daniel Blois, who was saying, well, why do you work for free? And it meant it got us thinking, and that opening discussion about well, actually, why do people do this type of work was where the sort of study was born out of. Initially, we went in looking, thinking it's going to be a motivational study, thinking about well, why just why do people think this? But then, as conversations grew and we started to think about the topic a little bit more, we thought well, actually, not just what these people, why these people want to do this, but what are they doing within clubs? What does their day-to-day work look like? What does their life outside of football look like? And how does the work impact their sort of full time careers and their sort of motivation to work in football full time? So that's kind of where the study grew. Obviously, as myself working unpaid across professional clubs as well, I had some level of insight into what it was like within football clubs, had contact within football. So it was a natural sort of topic to look at based on my background and my interest in the subject. So that's kind of where the study was born out of, from the MSc, and then obviously into the published paper now.
2: Plenty of lived experience there, mate. As we uh, love to see it in sociological circles. Um, your section on the prevalence of unpaid work in football um, it came as a bit of a shock to me, even taking into consideration my utter cynicism in respect of professional football, and um, especially Premier League football. Can you please give listeners an overview of that
1: unpaid work? Obviously myself being working unpaid I had a level of insider knowledge that I had to lean upon but obviously using academic resources and newspaper articles and policy to kind of inform my own experiences. As we were looking through what people had said about unpaid working football which there's not much on by the way really one of the the reasons we wanted to look at this topic was because of the lack of research looking at unpaid working football but when we were looking we We're seeing a bit of a correlation in terms of dates between 2012 being a big date for a lot of people discussing unpaid work in football and the difficulties of things like internships and voluntary work. And it kind of coincided with the implementation of the elite player performance plan, which was introduced by the Premier League in 2012. And the aim of that policy was to increase the number and quality of homegrown talent across the Premier League and then throughout the Football League. And one of the issues that a lot of clubs had was actually implementing the policy in that it required staff members to have certain levels of qualifications, to have often more staff included in the club. And the governing bodies didn't often help financially clubs to actually implement the policy. So a lot of clubs, so Brentford, for example, and Tranmere and Huddersfield Town, disbanded their academies, often citing the EPPP as a reason for that. Because of the financial cost to actually implement the policy so we looked at this correlation between an increase in unpaid roles the triple p being introduced and saying well it's not the full reason why unpaid roles might exist but it might be a reason why there's been an increase in a surge in unpaid roles in this sort of time period so it helps us look at well what clubs are employing unpaid scouts and why might they be employing unpaid scouts well i use employee isn't a bit of a asterisks there but yeah and the policy helps us kind of understand well what was the sort of wider context around the situation in this last sort of 10 years to why there might have been an increase and especially for someone like me who at the time of writing this was in a team of there was 25 30 unpaid scouts at this club why has there been a big increase or at least a noticeable increase in these types of roles existing in football
3: in the piece, you refer to the concepts of fantasy-laden thinking and the hope labour. I just wondered, firstly, if you'd be able to briefly explain them.
1: As part of the government policy towards unpaid work, voluntary work, internships, there is a mention of people brought in on internships and not allowed to be promised future work. So a lot of, and we talk about um, the creative industries as sort of evidence for unpaid work and internships, And they mention a lot about hope labour, and it's this concept that basically indicates how organisations will provide hope to unpaid workers that future work will be available in the hope that they will continue working, they'll work hard, build the context, build all this experience that unpaid work aims to achieve to hopefully get future prospects because they can't promise that future prospects will actually exist. So really, it's companies, in a way, I think we use the term baiting in the paper so getting people involved in these unpaid roles suggesting there might be future opportunities to develop this hope for people to continue working and work unpaid for quite long periods of time in terms of fantasy-laden thinking so that's a figurational concept from norbert elias's work so he talks about how sometimes people's emotional involvement in a topic or in a subject or in an industry might impact their ability to see rationally, develop, as he described it, reality congruence. So the idea of being able to understand their live realities. We looked at that as a, well, why do these scouts have a view that they will gain paid opportunities in the future? From my experiences, I've seen the industry going, well, actually there's not that many openly advertised paid opportunities out there in something like scouting. Why do these people work up to 20 hours a week as some of them were unpaid across multiple clubs going to multiple games writing lots of reports why do they do it if the evidence isn't apparent that those roles are available so we kind of looked at it from a well actually it might be their own beliefs of football and a lot of them used talked about their love for football and their passion for football stemming from a young age through going to university or through school or college and how their passion for the game kind of impacted their ability to understand the circumstance they were putting themselves in and again this is I guess I interviewed 12 people but I was also one of the sort of kind of quasi-participants in a way that I was in a very similar boat to them and that was a difficulty throughout the study trying to detach myself from being too involved in the study but the passion people have for football and their own love for football impacted on the way that they understood what they were getting themselves in for and out having a rational understanding of the job market post working on bid.
3: I wonder if I could just ask a bit of a kind of follow-up question, possibly getting a bit of your kind of personal thoughts on this, looking at this from a kind of broader historical lens, the extent to which you think these practices are reflective of Neoliberal economics and the notion of unregulated markets. Is that something that has really spawned this, or is it something that historically has always been the case?
1: It's quite difficult to say because even the like a figurational lens that we tried to look at the study through would lend itself to a more historical approach. We did look at the sort of development of the EPP as a sort of historical lens to understand the current context, but we didn't look too far back to sort of see again that was a lot to do with the lack of literature around this sort of subject and this is something that we'll probably get onto later in some of but the other questions about how the actual lack of research into the football industry is born out of the sort of secretive nature looking at people like Ivan Waddington's work in football talking about that it's difficult to say whether historically it's something that's kind of developed to now but we think that in terms of that the, sh- the way in which societies, in terms of employment anyway, sort of structured, that this kind of fit into that quite nicely and that people felt very little opportunity to get to a paid position without working unpaid. It was seen as something that was part and parcel of the job, something that was built into the structure of working in football. So it was something that these individuals felt that they had to do and that they had to kind of build their way up and that there was an idea of there was a little little alternative. That was something that we mentioned in the paper, that because they decided that they wanted to work in football and they'd had quite a clear mindset on that was what their final aims and goals were going to be, other than working unpaid, there was little alternative to get involved in football without being an ex-player or having certain contacts in the game. So it was the idea that they had a little alternative other than to try and work and hope that it would lead to unpaid or paid positions in the future. So I think trying to tie those sort of two questions together, bringing in the idea of hope labor, the idea that they had to work because they saw little alternative, actually led to having these sort of fantasy-laden thoughts about the industry and a lack of, a lack of, as we might describe, sort of being external to the study, sort of rational ideas of what the job market would look like in football.
0: You say that you approached the study through something you call figurational sociology. Could you give our listeners a a kind of brief breakdown of of what that actually means and, and how you used it in the study?
1: A figurational sociological lens, some people might also call it a process sociology, was born out of the work of Norbert Elias, and it generally focuses on interdependencies. So as a lot of theorists and a lot of theories might look at, the individual and society, a figurational lens tries to kind of bend, put the two together and not look at them as separate entities and look at that they're completely interdependent on one another and individuals are completely interdependent on one another. So focusing on networks a lot and relationships, which for a study, which was in kind of a closed environment of a football club or a football industry made sense to us. We use the concept of figurations, which are networks of interdependent people and groups, and also looked at power balances. In a figurational approach, power is something not that someone possesses, but is that is completely incorporated into all interdependent relationships. We decided that that was the right approach to try and understand, well, firstly, what are the motivations of these individuals getting into the industry? But then when they're in the industry, who are their key relationships with? What are the dynamic in these relationships? What are the dynamic between the individual unpaid scout and the club or the wider, broader football industry? So really it was allow, allowing us to look at relationships. That was the key focus of this theory. And again, we used concepts like fantasy-laden thinking and we looked at habitus and we looked at sort of power balances and established outsiders as an explanation of figurational power balances, but generally the focus was on relationships and trying to understand the relationships between unpaid scouts with each other, with potentially the head of recruitment or chief scout, with first team manager, with the broader football industry. So that was the kind of rationale behind using that type of theory.
2: I found it interesting that participants suggested that scouting, or at least scouting was perceived as being a more accessible uh, route to, you know, paid employment, I guess, or in football than, than, than coaching. It, it kind of amazes me, really, and it got me thinking of what, what's that evidence based on? Is that, is that just down to, I suppose, is that just tying to a world about? It? Is it a feeling or is it actual evidence based, as far as you're aware?
1: From what we got in the study was that they found scouting to be a more accessible route, at least in the unpaid side, to the top levels, because, for example, we had... A participant in the study was working on at a premier league club but he was actually working at a really low level in coaching he felt he could actually get to a higher level at least on the unpaid side of things in scouting more so than coaching whether that's to do with the actual number of people trying to get into the industry less people potentially trying to get into scouting than they may be in coaching we, we had little evidence to suggest that and we didn't really look at that too much. It was just from what the participants brought up. But in terms of the at least getting unpaid roles, scouting did see a much easier route to get to a higher level than coaching did. The bit where the sort of her labor and fantasy-laden thinking comes in, comes in towards actually getting paid positions post working unpaid. So there was very little evidence to suggest if you got an unpaid position scouting at a EFL club or a Premier League club, that that would lead to a full-time position. So even though they saw scouting as a more accessible route to get in the club initially, whether that led to paid positions in the future was not really there to be seen. So it it was the route actually into the clubs that the scouting side was seen as easier than the coaching side necessarily. And again, one of the things that, so all the participants in the study had some form of scouting qualification, however, some of the roles didn't necessarily rely on having qualifications too much because it was voluntary. They often said, if you can demonstrate some level of knowledge or experience in the industry, then we may give you an um, unpaid position. Whereas I think with coaching, there's a bit more of a reliance on having UFA qualifications, UA for A's and B's than necessarily in scouting. So. Again, I think the scouting side was just seen as an easier route to actually get within professional clubs, get there to get that experience, build those networks than coaching was because several of the participants did have experience sort of in both sectors.
3: Like have you mentioned the creative industries earlier on and you mentioned it in in the paper to so kind of pull the curtain back a little bit on this um, my full-time work is in the creative industries, so I was really interested to kind of see that parallel and there were some definitely some things in there that kind of ran through for me I just wonder from your point of view what you saw as the major similarities or maybe differences between unpaid labor in sport and in the creative industries
1: it's a really interesting question because I had no knowledge or experience of the creative industries before I put together the, initially the master dissertation and then this paper, however, when I spent a lot of hours on Google Scholar trying to understand unpaid labour, the creative industry seemed one of, if not the biggest sort of sector for that type of work. In terms of actual research, there was a lot more research on the creative industries than there was the football industries you could look in a lot of different sectors within the creative industries and there's a lot of research, whether it be in this country or wider field, that looked at unpaid work. So initially, the key difference was just the amount of research and amount of knowledge we actually had of what was going on in the football industry compared to a different industry. And that's something, as I kind of alluded to earlier, things in Ivan Waddington's research or Martin Roderick's research or Graham Law's research that talks about Working with managers and working with players, and understanding that football is a really secretive, enclosed industry, and that getting knowledge out of football clubs can be quite difficult. So the fact that there was very little on football and unpaid work wasn't massively surprising. Whereas in a strange way, and I think you'll have, to have a lot more knowledge about this than me, but in the creative industries, it seemed a bit more visible. They're a bit more open to talking about the issues in that industry than is in football, and I guess. If you look at a lot of issues across football, that would be quite similar. That they're quite, they hold back a lot of information and a lot of knowledge about certain, especially sensitive topics. Creative industries generally had a much broader focus, so it looked at a lot of a range of issues related to unpaid work. Whereas what we found in football, again, is is just specific to scouting. That's that is one of the things of this paper that even though we find it really interesting looking at what it is like to work compared in a football club, it is specific to one role, one position within one nation, really. So we have a lot more information about the creative industries. But in terms of actual experiences from the scouts we interviewed compared to people interviewing the creative industries, a lot of similarities, like, for example, talking about her Labour as a concept, talking to the scouts, the evidence that came up, of them mentioning things like Herp labour, or at least the idea of Herp labour, was very similar to what we got from the research in the creative industries and that being seen as kind of a key motivating factor for people to continue working unpaid and actually staying in that industry in the long term Is that they always saw levels of progression and that was something that in the football industry we kind of noticed as well. So in terms of similarities and differences, similarities in terms of actual structure of unpaid roles, The idea of not promising paid roles in the future but leaving this level of hope, baiting people to kind of stay in it for six months, a year, and hope that a paid role will come was very similar. The differences just came in the amount of information we actually know about the two industries because the football industry is quite closed, quite secretive, whereas the creative industries, at least from my eyes looking in, seemed a little bit more open to talking about the issue.
0: We've been talking about how football's romanticised and how that shaped many of the participants' views of the unpaid work they did. Do you think that that romanticism is largely due to the media and its portrayal of the game? Or do do you actually think that romanticism is quite integral to the enjoyment of football and even the sport itself, that we kind of have to romanticise it?
1: It is both aspects of that. I think the way in which we all engage with football has a level of romanticized nature to it sort of attaching ourselves to one club or attaching ourselves to certain players and our beliefs about certain other teams or certain other players there's always a level of romanticism to that the way in which the media I think portrays football as well focusing on the sort of good stuff more so than the sort of issues again follows through with that I think speaking to a lot of the participants as I said before that A lot of their experiences as a child growing up into adulthood, wanting to be involved in football grew from naturally their support for a team or at least support for the sport in general. And then that grew into a passion of, well, if I enjoy this as a leisure pursuit, as an external activity to my daily work, why would I not want to do that full time in work? And there was an idea of, well, it's what I enjoy, it's what I love then. I'd rather do that thing for a much longer period of time. I think if any of you watched any of the FA Cup a couple of weeks ago, that gives you the most perfect portrayal of how football is in an ideal world, how it ought to be rather than what it actually is. Describing the magic of the cup and the beautiful game, using all these sort of phrases that are banded around about football quite a lot week to week, especially in that competition. I think you see how people perceive football as that it will be a lot more exciting, a lot more enjoyable, a lot more how they perceive football from the outside, what it would be like inside than it actually is. So I think the idea of football being romanticised, I think, starts from a young age, how people actually engage with football, supporting a team, supporting players. And then also the media angle on top of that, of how it's actually portrayed to us rather than necessarily what people are experiencing when they're in the club.
2: Yeah, absolutely brilliant. Absolutely brilliant answer. Um, So for you you two talking about the creative industries, uh, Chris and you, Jacob, on on football, it got me thinking of even like NGOs, um, charities, right? I mean, I've worked at charities before as a volunteer and I've wanted to work for those charities because I, I thoroughly believe in their mission. But at the same time, I've always thought in the back of my mind, maybe I'll get a job out of this as well. It's quite cynical, isn't it? It's really cynical way of looking and me saying that about charities makes me probably a lot worse than somebody who's going into football or the creative industries but it is true i think i think there was all i think there is always an element in the back of your mind of thinking that maybe maybe i'll get you know the career that i really want out of this um and it doesn't necessarily work out like that especially in football obviously i think the charity angle that kind of works perfectly with the
1: football angle i think a lot of the participants we spoke to had this idea of well I believe in the football clubs. I believe in what they're trying to achieve. I'm talking about signing a player who might go out and score a goal in front of a packed Wembley or something like that. This idea of having a really romanticized idea of what they themselves could add to this organization, this business, a lot of them not perceiving it as a business, perceiving it as a football club rather than an organization, a business. The idea that they could go in and contribute and actually add something to this organization gave them that kind of motivation to be involved rather than thinking, well, why should they not pay me? Whereas if I went and worked for a supermarket or I went to work for just another business, why would they do it? Because I don't believe in their mission as much. I think it's this idea of, well, why are people getting involved to begin with? And then actually, just because I believe in that mission or that objective or I want to help that organisation, does that mean I shouldn't be paid? any less than someone who worked for a different organization
2: we're moving on to the final question actually um one participant john said and I quote here it starts off as a hobby and then it turns into a passion a lot of the time it's something you'd be doing anyway did you get a sense that by blurring the boundaries between work and leisure time participants were actually sacrificing the enjoyment of the game this was quite an interesting question to read because it was something that
1: i myself felt more than i think the participants felt So it's something that, obviously, working in academia more now, don't work in football, in scouting, that I felt working in scouting. Whereas for the participants, I think, because they were still on their ascendancy, still on their journey to either achieve full-time work or if they'd already achieved full-time work, work their way up the league system, they were still all really motivated to carry on. So even one of the participants who'd been doing it for five, six years working unpaid, across coaching, unpaid scouting, was every day I'm getting a bit closer to my goal, my objective, and he was very motivated to do it. And it was something that shocked me because I wasn't that uh, motivated. I wasn't in that position where I felt that I could dedicate that amount of time to something. But I think because of the position they were in of still trying to work their way up, the scouting ladder and trying to achieve full-time work and achieve a full-time role they were still very motivated and that they didn't seem to like football any less because they were working in it so and it was this is something that in the original thesis we kind of alluded to in our conclusions but didn't mention in the paper was that we said that it'd be quite interesting in the future to look at people who've actually dropped out of the industry and interview people whether it be in scouting or in coaching or another role in football, to speak to people who've kind of given up the dream of making it in football, because we think it'd be quite interesting to understand, well, what what was the factors in leaving? Obviously, the money's always going to be something that's talked about, but how did the working hours play into that? How did the actual environment play into that? How did working with other members of staff play into that? And looking at, well, did working in football actually kind of put you off football in the end? And was that something that motivated you to maybe go and work in a different industry or try something else? What actually sort of kick-started that change? So it was something that we suggested in the original thesis, but never got round to mentioning in the paper because it didn't quite fit with the conclusions we were trying to put together. But it is something that we thought about and something that we have looked at in a sort of roundabout way, kind of thought about how does working in football actually impact your sort of views on football? But from the people we spoke to, they did have a really a romanticised view of football still, even working in it, they still loved what they did, despite all the negatives, and this is one of the things about you could easily say, well why, why do you do it? Because if you're working ridiculously long hours, part-time on top of a full-time job, you're not actually getting paid for it, there's travelling involved, there's long hours, lots of demands from the club side of things, why do you actually carry on doing it? But their views of football and their beliefs that they wanted to work in football drove them to kind of carry on this type of work. So it's something that I think it's really interesting that you ask, because it's something that I feel like I experienced a lot more than the participants did. And that I kind of understood why someone might drop out more so than they did. But I think it is generally because of the path they were on, still on the ascendancy, still trying to make it in the world of football, even those who had full-time positions still trying to, make it to a bigger club a bigger role than necessarily they felt like they'd kind of ran the course of football and they're done with it
3: jacob absolutely fascinating discussion um really enlightening article and thank you very much for for kicking off series two in style with us um just one final question before we go which is if our listeners are interested hearing more from you, uh, finding out more about your work, what's the best way of them reaching out to you or kind of following you on social media?
1: I use LinkedIn a lot, if Jacob Griffiths on LinkedIn, one thing in terms of recruitment for this study and for my current PhD now, LinkedIn I think for the football industry especially is one of the most useful, if not the most useful tool for job searching, connecting with people in the football industry, obviously gaining access to clubs can be quite difficult so if either drop me a message on linkedin i'd be happy to speak or on twitter which is jacob griffiths underscore and again get into sort of academic conversations about football as much as possible there and try and sort of mainly focusing on the backroom staff unpaid sort of angle but focusing on the football industry as much as possible from a sociological perspective
3: Brilliant. Well, thank you very much. We'll definitely stick um, those details just in the notes for listeners. But um, yeah, just all that remains for for me and us to say is thank you very much. And uh, listeners, we'll be back with you soon.